There is a PDF file of the handout for Organ 101 that can be found at stjohnwheaton.org organ, or it can also be found on the St. John website under the Resources tab. Okay, it is 10 o'clock, so we will, uh, we will get started. I'm going to talk, I think, mostly from right here this morning without falling into the font, um, just so I can run, run back and forth a few times. Peter volunteered to be my uh, assistant organist, but um, I, I trust him, but, you know, it's good, good to keep control of yourself. Uh, this is going to be, uh, please make sure you have a handout, which is right here under my left hand, um, or up here for the balcony people. Uh, we're going to do two weeks of what I've called Organ 101. That means that I'm going to be speaking to you as if you know virtually nothing about the organ. I understand that that is not the case for some of you, but please do not be offended. That's just how we're, this is how we're pitching this and how we're aiming this. So if I use some organese terminology that uh, is unfamiliar to you, just raise your hand and ask what, I, what in the world I'm talking about and uh, we'll clarify. Uh, but the goal is that this would be uh, ground level and uh, foundational. Um, the, the, the main page on your packet that you're going to want to reference is page two, uh, which is page two, image three, exhibit A, uh, any way you want to look at it. Uh, what we're going to do today and next week is I'm going to uh, teach you how to read this. Um, uh, you'll know how to read it, and you'll know how to listen for what the stuff on this Exhibit A means. Uh, so we're going to get to that in just a second. I wanted to start, though, today by answering a few questions that have come up. Uh, most of you have probably not realized, but uh, over the last few months, I have been trying to keep a log of all the questions that people have asked of me, uh, and they have gen generally broken down into three uh, common questions. If, if you have a, uh, let me say this, if you have a question that uh, does not get answered here today, um, we're not going to have a random, I'm sure we won't have time today at least to have a Q&A at the end. Just shoot me an email or pull me aside uh, this week and we'll make sure we address it next week. But these are by far the three most uh, common questions that uh, have come up. The first is, why? Look at uh, look at image uh, look at image 13 on page four, the image of the council. The first question is, why are the black and white notes reversed? And related to that, does, isn't it confusing to play the white notes that should be black and the black notes that should be uh, white? I. Uh, I actually do not know the answer to this question, but I'm going to make up an answer that I think <laughs> sounds right, and then if one of you knows the answer, you can correct me. First, you should know that it's very common for organs to look like this. I don't know if most organs are this way, but certainly many are. In other words, the black keys are the main keys, and the white keys are not, uh, are the what you would consider to be the black keys on the piano. I assume the reason is, is this. Piano keys are traditionally made out of, traditionally as in before it became illegal, <laughs> made out of what? Ivory, right? So, which is a naturally white substance. Organ and harpsichord keys would be the same thing, are usually made out of wood, which is a naturally dark thing. So I assume that's why the main keys on the piano are white and the main keys on the organ are dark. Um, uh, that's just what I've always assumed. And uh, others have asked, does, this th does it throw you off, or uh, you know, do you have to close your eyes to play, or something like that? Does it confuse you? Um, the answer is no, because it's common. But I think it would be the same thing as saying, you know, if you change the color of the gas and brake pedals on your car or something, you know, you might notice it initially, but uh, after that, you know, you just you're looking at the road and at other stuff, uh, your phone or what, whatever. Uh, you're not looking at uh, you're not looking at the pedals. And so once you're going, you're just used to it. And so I would never notice the difference, but that's always the first thing that people notice when they see the console. Uh, the second most common question that has been asked is, uh, is, it, is it different to play than the old organ? Or uh, before we had the organ here, the question was phrased like this, uh, are you going to be able to play it, or are you going to have to learn, sort of, learn from scratch? Um, the first few times 
that people asked me that question, I was, <laughs> I was kind of offended. And you know, I said, I mean, give, me a, give me a break. I may not be the world's most famous concert organist, but I hope it's obvious I'm not like an amateur up here, right? I mean, I've played organs all over the world. I'm sure I'll be able to handle it. Uh, but then I wised up and, st and started saying, you know, I think, I think I might be able to play it, but you know, if you tripled my salary, I would get really good really fast. Um, but of course, the, the truth is actually somewhere in between those two extremes. Uh, because the fact is, I mean, this organ is, uh, it's definitely more rewarding to play, but it is, in many senses, harder to play. And I'll show you uh, a couple of reasons why. Um, uh, so, so let me just highlight three differences in terms of sort of the experience of playing the organ. I realize I've neglected to give you a picture of the pedal board, so you'll have to come up and see yourself sometime. But this organ has a flat pedal board, which means that all the pedals are... Yeah, they're flat, whereas uh, most uh, American organs have, I guess, what you would call a concave pedal board, where the pedals on the extreme ends are raised up a little bit. It's curved for ease of reaching the pedal, I guess. So that is one thing to get used to, but this is the more sort of historic building practice is to have a flat pedal board, which is, I think, the reason that, uh, uh, that we've done that here. That takes, you know, that takes a week or two of getting used to, but then you get kind of into the routine of it. Um, but it would be something that would throw you off initially. The main two differences are, first, this organ is, it feels different because it's a mechanical action organ. So there are basically three kinds of organs that you need to know about in the world. One, the one that we used to have, was a fully electronic instrument, right? That meant that... You played a note, it's through an electric contact, sent a signal to speakers which were on this beam above my head here, and it, uh, the sound was all sampled. So some of you, for instance, often wonder, look at the uh, image, uh, on page 7, image 25. Uh, those are the pipes that uh, you used to be able to see along the back wall here but are now covered up by the case. Uh, some people thought that those pipes had been playing all along and asked questions like, where are the other pipes? How can we only see those pipes? When we had the old organ, those pipes were never playing, nor were any pipes, right? It was purely electronic. It's essentially a, a super glorified version of a keyboard you would buy at Costco or whatever. It's just electronically sampled sound. It's purely electronic. And, I mean, it worked fine for what it was. That's one kind of organ. The second kind of organ is a pipe organ, but it's electric action, which means that when you play a note, an electric contact sends a signal to the pipes wherever they are, and the pipe plays. So, I mean, this is the way most organs were built in the mid to late 20th century, I would say. Um, so if you go to, you know, across the street to Gary United Methodist, you see the console, the place where the organist plays, is up in front, and most of the pipes are up in front, but there's a division of pipes that's in the balcony. And you could do the same thing in this sanctuary. You know, the console could be back there in the chapel, and you could have the pipes up here. It wouldn't make any difference um, where, the, where the keyboard was located, because when you play a note, an electric signal just gets sent to wherever the pipes are. Does that make sense? That's an electric action instrument. This instrument is a mechanical action instrument, which means that when I play a key, it actually physically opens the uh, airway to a specific pipe. Now, we'll talk next week a little bit about kind of the guts of the instrument and how it all works. I didn't want to lead off with that today. But for the purpose of this discussion, just know that it, feel, it feels different to physically be playing a note as opposed to just be playing an electric contact, if that makes sense. It's not just like... It's like the difference between playing an electric keyboard that has no weighted keys and like a real piano that has some weight to the key that you have to press down. Uh, there's actually sort of a physical element to pressing the key down. Um, and uh, that, that does take some getting used to um, and is still kind of a work in progress uh, on this instrument. Um, the, uh, the, the third difference is with the wind. Um, so let me, let me illustrate this by playing one thing. So um, Pastor Bukes asked about this last week. He asked, why when you play the introduction to the thank the Lord is the, is the C at the top of the scale, why does it sound out of tune for a second? So see if you can, I'll play it, what I normally play, what I just played this morning, and see if you can hear what he's, uh, what he's talking about.
Do you hear that gulp, the gulp of air on the top? I'll play it one more time. See how the sound is there for a second, and then it takes it, it kind of disappears and is slightly under pitch for a split second and then comes back in? It's because the organ is powered by real wind, and so when you're playing a bunch of pipes, it swallows up a bunch of air, and it takes a split second for the pressure that you can see. Again, we'll talk more about this next week, but you can see, for instance, on image five on page three, you can see that the bellows back in the blower room have like a bunch of black bricks sitting on top of them, right? Those bricks are just weight that keeps the pressure constant. But when you use a whole bunch of air, it takes a second to sort of gasp and recover the air. Um, now, uh, <laughs> it's con apparently, I'm told, it's considered to be like in good taste if you can hear the organ breathing a little bit because that shows you that it's really a winded instrument and not an electronic copy. Um, but of course, there's a fine line between breathing a little bit and gasping for air and sort of not, uh, not covering the singing well. Um, and so anyway, the, the point is, from my perspective, that's something I can control that to a certain uh, degree by playing better, which for the sake of our discussion now just means um, uh, playing in a, with an articulation or a touch that's consistent that will kind of predict for the wind what's going to happen. So there's, it's, that's a sort of very technical art, which I'm still working on on this instrument. So the playing, my playing will get better as I sort of get used to what the wind does. Um, and as the instrument is finished as well. It's also possible that it's the instrument's fault, um, and we'll work on it from that end. But that, that is an important difference. Playing on the wind is a, is a skill. And you know, when I, um, uh, when I was in grad school, the organ that we had at Notre Dame, uh, they had uh, a way that you could shut off the blower electronically and you could pump the wind um, manually. I mean, of course, that's the way it used to be done before electricity, right? Some you know, naughty choir boy or something would be assigned to, uh, uh, to have to pump the instrument during the church service. Um, and the challenge, you know, the challenge for the pumper was always to let the, so, the, so that the audience wouldn't be able to tell whether the instrument was being electronically winded or manually pumped. If you were a good pumper, you would basically have the same consistency as an electronic uh, motor and bellows, if that makes uh, sense. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, next week. Uh, okay, the, the, thir the third question that is asked most frequently is uh, something like, why is it so small? And that generally breaks down into a few different questions. One is, like, why is the console itself so small? The console is just like the area from which you play the, you know, where the keyboards are. Um, so again, if you look at image 13, it doesn't look as small now that it's installed, but when the, when the manuals or keyboards were freestanding, it, it looked just like, you know, a little fairy instrument or something. With little, you know, these little keys, and it would look kind of silly with me standing next to it. Because when you picture an organ, you picture, I mean, like we used to have, I mean, you can see it in the old picture here in image one on the very front. You can see the old console in the left-hand uh, side of that picture. You picture some giant big wooden box with a bunch of keyboards on, and, you know, you think the bigger this wooden box, the sort of more impressive the sound is going to be, or whatever. Um, but keep in mind that the big wooden box that we had over there was mostly just a hollow wooden... I mean, there were a few wires in it, really. But other than that, it was just kind of a glorified desk for me to store junk on. Um, there, wa there, was, there wasn't any significance to the size of this console. Um, and uh, all you really need in an instrument like this is, you know a couple of keyboards to play. There's nothing, there's nothing else. Um, because it's a mechanical instrument, the, the keyboards or the manuals are obviously attached to the case rather than a big freestanding box. So that's one reason that it looks uh, smaller. Another, it, 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 the question is legitimate though in one sense. The organ is a little bit smaller than some instruments. Um, if you took the time to count on image 13 all of the keys, I'll just save you the trouble you would find out that there are uh, there's 58 keys on each manual or keyboard, and there's 30 keys uh, on the pedal board, which are a couple of short of what American organs are generally built as. So this organ goes up to, an a, what is it, three A's above middle C or something like that. 
some, some instruments go up to the, uh, an another C, a full octave uh, up from that, so they have whatever that would be, uh, 61 notes. Um, this, I, I think there's probably two reasons why we only have 58 notes instead of 61. One is, again, uh, a nod to historic building practices. Um, older organs had less keys because, uh, I don't know why. Well, I think it's because of the second reason, which is it's, <laughs> it's cheaper to have less keys, and why, uh, why have pipes in the organ that you use like once in a, you know, once a year or whatever? So, uh, for practicality's sake, the organ doesn't go all the way up to the high C, but that's the way most historic organs are, uh, so it's not unusual in that sense. Uh, the other question about sort of why is it so small generally pertain to why are there only two manuals or keyboards? And people would say, hey, I've seen organs on TV or in person or whatever that have, you know, five or six, you know, manuals, and if this thing is costing us, you know, a million bucks or whatever it is, shouldn't we, <laughs> shouldn't we have like a big stack of <laughs> keyboards like that? Um, that's a good question. Uh, that's one of the reasons I've included in your packet a bunch of what I consider to be comps. Uh, the way some people have asked the question is, how does this organ compare to other organs that are being built or to other organs that you've played? So if you go to page eight, I'll just, uh, we'll look more at these next week, but I'll just explain why I put these as comps in here. Um, the first organ on page eight is a Fisk from the 90s uh, that Mike Rathke, our builder here, I think he was the lead voicer on this instrument. And um, if you took the time to compare this stop list to our stop list, you'll see that it's nearly identical. This, this has 30 stops, our organ has 31, and on down the line. It's, so the point is, uh, it's very similar to this, which was a, kind of a model organ. If you look at page nine, this is the first Lutheran organ in Boston. I don't know if any of you, well, I know some of, I know some of you have heard it uh, ad nauseum. Um, I haven't gotten to hear it. Uh, I was out there last year for a conference, but the birth of my son interfe interfered with my plan, so I didn't go to play the organ. Uh, but this is considered by some, who apparently know more than me, to be the best organ in the LCMS, the organ here on page nine. Okay, so I'm getting some affirmation from the audience here that some of you consider it to be the best organ in the LCMS. The point for our discussion right now is you can see, just in terms of the number of stops, it's a, uh, it also has two manuals, like our organ here, and it has a few less st stops. It's a slightly smaller instrument than this instrument, so it's comparable in terms of size. The organ on page 10 is a similar story. Um, this is another organ like the uh, Boston organ that's considered to be uh, an organ especially good at playing Bach repertoire. Not that the goal of every organ is just to play Bach, but these two organs specifically were designed to play Bach. And you can see again, there's two manuals, one called the Great, one called the Oberwerk, and then the pedal. And uh, it has a few less stops than our organ. So ours is slightly larger than the Goshen College organ. Uh, then in terms of instruments that I've played uh, in my career, the, the Fritz organ at Notre Dame on page 11 was one of the main reasons that I uh, did my graduate school work there. You can see, again, a similar story. There's two manuals with a pedal. Here there's a couple, uh, a couple more stops than uh, our organ, but again, it's very similar in size. And then I included on the back, I was the organist at the chapel at uh, Northwestern for a few years, and this is, the, this is the kind of organ that people imagine when they ask about this one, why is it so small, right? This is a typical, like, mid-century giant instrument in the U.S. So it has uh, 74 stops. So it's basically, I mean, it's well over twice the size of what, uh, of what we have. And it has four manuals. But I can tell you, there's a, there's a big difference between organs that have one manual and two manuals. As you can imagine, you can play with one sound on one hand and one sound on another hand, and that makes a big difference. And it gains you a lot of flexibility. Organs with three manuals are uh, exponentially less useful because, as you may know, I don't have three hands. But uh, it, it, there is a lot of, for instance, like French repertoire that has you bouncing back and forth between, you know, forte, mezzo forte, piano, or something that you would use three manuals. An organ like this at Northwestern that has four manuals, I mean, I can, I can probably count the number of times on my two hands that I ever touched the fourth manual on the organ. I mean, it's nice to know it's there, 
but uh, basically it, you're never going to use it. So the point of all this, all these comps, is to, to show you the organ that we have here is really, it's really in line with a lot of the historic kind of instruments that are being built by builders in the last 20 or 25 years here in the U.S. It's a big, two-manual, mechanical action instrument. It doesn't have uh, a lot of, it doesn't, I don't think I have any extra stuff that's kind of just for the sake of size or stuff that we might, you know, just use on Easter or something like that. It's designed to be very practical, very robust, but it's very much in line with a lot of the building practices that are sort of governing organ building over the last 25 years or so in uh, the U.S. Okay, those were the questions that I wanted to address before kind of getting to the main event here. So let's turn back to uh, page two again, the stop list. This is what I want to teach you to read uh, today and next week. Because um, I think, I mean, I think for many of us, like standing in front of, I mean, seeing a stop list or standing in front of the console of an organ is kind of like going in a, you know, a pilot's cockpit or something. You're just like, these are just a bunch of words and numbers that are meaningless to any, you know, any mortal human being. And what in the world does this all mean? Uh, but I'm going to show you today, it's actually, it's actually pretty clear what everything means. And you sitting down in the pews are actually going to be able to sort of be able to tell um, uh, kind of what you're hearing based on this uh, stop list here. And <laughs> I've designed a short test at the end for you to see if that's true or not. So, uh, so be ready for that. Um, okay. Uh, the, the thing we're going to talk about next week are the stop names. So you see on the left-hand side you have a bunch of words, right? Preston, principal, second principal, spire flute, down, 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 down. Uh, those are the names of the different sounds. Next week, we'll talk about the families of sounds and uh, sort of demonstrate what they all mean and why they sound different and what the pipes look like. That's the main purpose of most of these pictures in the packet that show you what different pipes look like in the organ. Uh, you, you will be able to, by next week, figure out why certain sounds sound the way they do. The column that we're going to talk about today is the second column, the pitch column. The other three columns on this stop list uh, don't need much of an introduction. The pipes column is obvious. I've already told you that there are 58 notes on each manual or each keyboard. So you can see the first stop on the organ is a prestant, 16 feet, and it has 58 pipes, which just means in that rank, there is one pipe for each note. And that's the way it is for most of the organ, right? Same thing for the second. Principal, 8 foot, 58 pipes. There's one pipe for each note. There's a few exceptions, and you'll... Uh, figure out why that's the case uh, uh, before long. The next column over is the material that the pipe is made of. That needs no explanation for me, and I don't really know anything about it. Um, but most of the pipes are made by some sort of metals that are melted together and then molded into a pipe. And because of the particular alloy of metals, they sound different. Um, and so you can see what uh, those are. And then on the comments is just uh, random comments. So, for instance, on the first one, the Preston 16-foot, you see the comment is base pipes in facade, which just means the pipes you're looking at behind me are those pipes. That's the facade, and those are the base pipes. You can see them. Uh, by far, the majority of pipes in the organ are hidden from view. These are just a few of them, right? They're, most of them are in the case behind the pipes that you can see. So the comments have notated where you can actually see the pipes. Uh, what we want to deal with today is the pitch column, 16, 8, 8, 8, 4, 4, and on down. Uh, before, uh, uh, before we get to the, uh, the organ pipes specifically, it probably will be helpful to have a brief and hopefully tolerable introduction to the, f the physics of sound, um, which really Pastor Bukes is the best person to give the introduction to because... I think a lot of his undergraduate work was in this area specifically, which many of you may not realize. Um, but th the goal of this brief conversation is for you to realize that one of the things that makes the organ unique is that it makes explicit the overtone or harmonic sequence, is, which is what I'm going to explain uh, right now. Uh, when you hear a note played by any instrument, so, for instance, here, let's see, here's a middle C, right? When you hear a middle C being played, 
by any instrument, your ear hears a middle C, which vibrates, I don't know what exactly what it is. For the sake of argument, let's say that C vibrates at uh, 500 vibrations per second. You know sound is made by vibrations, right? So middle C vibrates at about 500 vibrations per second. But what most of us don't realize is that when you hear a middle C, your ear also hears a series of overtones or harmonics above middle C. In other words, you hear a bunch of higher notes as well, and that contributes to uh, how uh, sort of the character of the sound. In I think it's a French word, right? It's the, it's the word we call timbre, T-I-M-B-R-E, which is like the quality or character of, the, of a sound. It's the reason that the C that I just played sounds different on an organ than on a clarinet or any other instrument. It's because the overtone sequence is balanced in a different way. So when I play a middle C, there are a predictable series of overtones that you hear above the middle C. So let me illustrate it in a couple of ways. The way that it's normally illustrated is by envisioning a string vibrating. So let's say you had a violin, and I know this isn't true, but let's say that uh, one of the strings on the violin was tuned to middle C. When you bow across the string, the whole string vibrates, again, let's say at 500 vibrations a second, and that's what makes middle C. That's obvious. That's the foundational pitch. But what uh, many people don't realize is it also vibrates in a predictable series of fractions above that. So the easiest one to understand is the first harmonic. The whole string is vibrating at 500 vibrations per second, but at the same time, each half of the string is also vibrating on its own, and because the string is halved, it vibrates at twice the frequency of the whole string, which means that your ear is hearing middle C, and you're also hearing each half of the string play the C above middle C, because when you double the frequency, it plays an octave, uh, it plays the next octave higher. Now, it really gets weird, because what you're actually hearing is not just each C, you are hearing middle C and the next C and so on, but you're also hearing other, uh, other intervals. So the next harmonic is the fifth above uh, the highest C, so a twelfth above middle C. I know this is, uh, gets a little bit crazy here, but you just have to understand that when I play middle C, you're hearing middle C, but you're also hearing a bunch of notes above middle C, and those are the notes that the organ makes explicit by having pipes play those notes uh, specifically, and I'll show you what I mean. I thought of another way to illustrate it in the middle of the night a couple months, <laughs> a months ago for a reason that you will quickly understand. So uh, when, you are, uh, when you are bouncing a baby and trying to get a baby to go back to sleep, you generally, I find, develop kind of a predictable rhythm of bouncing, right? And normally, like the, co the core rhythm comes from your core, you bounce with your knees generally, and that's sort of the main rhythm of the, of the rocking. But generally what happens, at least for me, is you're bouncing with the knees at one frequency, but then your arms are often rocking at a higher frequency. So for instance, I might uh, shake my arms at twice the speed that I'm bouncing with my knees. You see what I mean? Now, when I ask you, at what frequency or what rate am I bouncing the baby? Uh, the, the correct answer is whatever rate my knees are bouncing, because that's the sort of fundamental motion that the baby feels, right? But at the same time, there are other vibrations or other rocking motions that are happening at the same time that are faster. And that's basically the way the overtone or harmonic series works in music. There's a fundamental sound, and that's the one you hear, um, but uh, sort of what gives it its character or quality are the sort of faster rocking motions on top. So the, this is a new way of explaining it that I'm trying out on you, but it, it made sense to me in the middle of the night uh, at, one, at one point. So let me, uh, let me show you sort of what the payoff for that is. It means that if I play a middle C uh, on the organ, uh, I don't need to play the next highest C in order to hear that note. I just have to pull another stop, and it'll play it for me. So here's middle C. Now I can add one octave up, and now I can add another octave up. I can add an octave down, 
and I can add a series of octaves and fifths all by holding down just one note. So this is the reason why if you were to look at organ music, you find that uh, there's not a lot of octave playing in the hands. So you, for instance, you can always tell if an organ score has been written by somebody who primarily plays the piano because there will be a lot of, uh, a lot of octaves. Because when you play the piano, you play a ton of octaves in both hands, right? Uh, that's, just, that's just the sort of pianistic uh, style that everyone uses. But to play octaves on an organ is a waste of your time because you can accomplish the same thing just by adding a stop that'll play an octave above or an octave below the note you're already holding. So you don't, you don't write or play in octaves generally uh, in the organ. Now let's talk about the, the specific numbers and how that relates to uh, what I've just explained to you. So if you look at your, uh, if you look back at your stop list, let's go, the, uh, the one that's easiest to understand that you need to start with is the second one down. So you see a stop called principal eight foot. Everyone see where that is? It's the second stop listed there. That's the stop that I was playing middle C on earlier. This one right here. Whoops. Uh, right here. What the eight foot, what the, what the number means is, with a couple exceptions, which I will explain in a minute, the number is the length of the lowest pipe in that rank, okay? So when I pull the eight foot stop, it means that this pipe right here, this one right here, this pipe uh, is the one you're gonna hear, that's this. It's basically eight feet from uh, the lip of the pipe to the top of the pipe. The toe of the pipe doesn't make any difference in terms of the pitch. So for instance, you see all these pipes here which have like super long toes before they get to the lips. That's just for show, it doesn't mean anything. The only thing, uh, the only thing that matters is the length of the pipe from the lip to the top. And uh, the lowest pipe is two octaves below middle C. It's a base C. So uh, I already told you that there is 58, 58 pipes in each rank. So you can uh, just start to do the math with me. So I've pulled out the eight-foot principle. That's the lowest note, which is eight feet long. It's two octaves below middle C, uh, the base C. If I, go, if I go up one C to the next C, how long is that pipe? Well, it's four feet long, because if you have the length of the pipe, you double the frequency of the vibration, which makes it sound one octave higher. So this pipe is eight feet long. This pipe is four feet long. Middle C is a two-foot-long pipe. Soprano C is one foot. The highest C on the organ is six inches, which makes the highest note on this rank, whatever that would be, three, like, like three inches long, right? So you can start to extrapolate from that all of the other lengths. So the length, again, is the length of the lowest note. So if you scan down a few stops to where it says 15th two feet, that means that the lowest pipe in that uh, rank is two feet, uh, which is this, which is actually which pitch and concert pitch? Middle C, because this is bass C two octaves below middle C, but it sounds two octaves above the note I'm playing, so we're back to middle C. So just extrapolate the lengths. The lowest pipe is two feet long, bass C is one foot long, uh, middle C is six inches long, soprano C is three inches long, the highest C is an inch and a half long, and then you're up here, this is like the highest, so that would be like the smallest pipe on the organ, right? The pipe is whatever that would be, a little less than an inch long, right? Uh, so you can, uh, you can quickly figure out why the vast majority of pipes in the organ are tiny, tiny little pipes and not big pipes like you see, because each octave is exponentially related to the previously octave by a, fa by a factor of two, the pipes get small really fast, and there's only a few very large pipes on the organ. Most of the pipes are two feet or less, right? And you can see that, I mean, where's a good, where's a good picture of, like if, you, like if you look at, on page five, if you look at image 19, you can see that inside the case of the grate, it's just, you know, it's just like a million tiny little whistle pipes. And that's pretty much what the organ is, except for a few giant pipes that you see here. Um, so eight feet is concert pitch. I don't think I said that before. 
The eight-foot stop is concert pitch, which means when I play this uh, uh, pipe down here that's two octaves below middle C, uh, that's, that actually is two octaves below middle C. It's not an octave up or an octave below. You'll notice that the first stop listed on your stop list is a 16-foot stop, however, which means that it plays uh, an octave below concert pitch. Now, all the 16-foot stops didn't quite fit uh, in the facade. So the, the biggest pipe on the organ that you can see is the one right here in the middle. That's the 16-foot G-sharp. Oops, I still have the uh, two-foot on. Uh, that's the 16-foot G-sharp, which is this note right here. The lowest, whatever that is, seven, uh, I guess it's eight pipes, are uh, hidden in the back because they didn't fit under the, uh, the beam up there on top. So the uh, rank is split a little bit. Um, we'll talk more about this next week. But if you look, uh, if you were to look, you don't have to do this now, but at the comps that I gave you, you'll see that this Prestant 16-foot uh, uh, rank is one that some of the comps don't have. And you can quickly figure out why. It's because the, uh, the lower the stop, the bigger the pipe, obviously, which means you have to use more material to build it. So there's a, a much higher cost to include something like a big 16-foot stop in an organ than there is just to base it on uh, an 8-foot stop. The lower the stop, the more material, and the more expensive it is. That's why in big, giant organs, you find stops in the pedal that are uh, 32 feet long. Now, most, when most organ builders, even if it's a... I don't know, maybe this is a generalization, but most organs that are built today, if they have a 32-foot stop, it's a digital stop. In other words, uh, the entire organ is real pipes except for the 32-foot stop, and you can quickly figure out why, right? Just imagine the amount of material it takes to construct a rank of pipes based on a 32-foot pipe. It's a huge amount of uh, material and a huge amount of space. I mean, there's no way we could fit a rank in here like that unless you bent the pipe. Now, you can bend pipes with no, uh, no ill effect. Look at uh, page, oh, where is it? Oh, pa image 23 on page 6. Do you see up in the, uh, up in the upper left-hand corner of image 23 there? You see the uh, pipes that look like, I don't know, to me they look like uh, something at the, ch at the Children's Museum where you like put uh, ping pong balls in front of these pipes and they shoot them out or something like that. Um, the, the three lowest uh, pipes in one of the ranks on the swell didn't quite fit under the roof of the swell, so they were uh, mitered to uh, fit, and now they stick out straight. But as, uh, it, it actually doesn't make any difference in the sound. As long as the pipe is the same length, it doesn't matter, interestingly, if the pipe is straight up and down or not, which is the same principle as, like, a contrabassoon, right? I mean, how many times is, like, a contrabassoon, you know, the tube goes... I mean, I mean do you know what... I mean, if you unwrap a contrabassoon, how long is it? It's like... It's like the length of a football field or something, right? But it's wrapped up so many times um, that it seems like, you know, it's a normal-sized instrument. It's the same principle with uh, organ pipes. You can wrap them around um, and still make the same sound. Now, there are a couple of exceptions to the rule that I just gave you. Remember, the rule is the number on your stop list corresponds to the length of the lowest pipe in that rank. There are a couple of exceptions. One of the exceptions is the reeds, so for instance, things called like trumpet or clarinet or oboe, we'll talk about what that means next week. Those pipes uh, make a sound in a different way, so they don't necessarily need to be the length that they say. In that case, if you see something called German trumpet eight feet, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's eight feet long, it just means that it sounds at the eight foot pitch, which means it's concert pitch. That's just a shorthand way of saying that. Uh, there are a couple of interesting exceptions, though. Um, some, some stops, this is going to sound confusing, some stops or sounds on the organ have stopped pipes. So if you look, for instance, at... Um, go back to page 6. Yeah, go back to page 6. Look at image 20. You can see on image 20 that in the center of the picture, you can see some wooden pipes that have like a plunger inserted through the top there. You see that? Uh, if you stop a pipe, in other words, if you, if you put something on top to keep the air from coming out the top, you make the pipe sound uh, twice as low as it would if it were open. 
Does that make sense? So you can immediately see what the benefit of having a stopped pipe is in an organ. Uh, one is cost. You don't have to build a pipe that's as long. And the second is space. You don't need to have as much space. So if you look at page 7 on the opposite page there, you see in image 28 uh, the, the pedal rear facade. Th those pipes there in image 28 are uh, the 16-foot boarding on the pedal. But the longest pipe there is not actually 16 feet long. It's 8 feet long. But because it's stopped, it sounds an octave below, which means it sounds at 16-foot pitch. Does that make sense? So it's a way of getting a pipe to sound at an octave below without having to build a pipe that's twice as long, if that makes sense. The other, op the other uh, exception in your stop list, if you go back to page 2, you see that all of the... Um, uh, let, let me say one thing first. You see that all of the pitches have a foot mark after, right? 16 feet, 8 feet, 8 feet, 8 feet, 4 feet, 4 feet. And then you see there are two fractions, right? 2 and 2 thirds, and then uh, 2 further down you see 1 and 3 fifths. This is what I was talking about earlier, where the pipes reinforce the harmonics. A pipe that's 2 and 2 thirds feet long sounds at an octave and a fifth above the note that you're playing. Now this pipe, this rank is not in yet, but I'll just demonstrate what it does. So if I were to play, here's middle C, uh, here's middle C on an eight foot. If I were to pull the two and two thirds, it would sound like this. It's C and then the G two octaves higher. And then if I were to also pull the uh, one and three fifths, that plays the next E higher. So this would be C, then two and two-thirds adds this, then one and three-fifths adds this. In other words, it's a C major chord, but it's achieved only by playing one note because the other pipes are not playing a unison C. They're playing a G and an E. Now, it may seem like a terrible idea to play, to have pipes that sound in a note that you're not playing. In other words, think about it. If I want, to, if I want you to sing a C, why would I play a bunch of G's and E's? But again, that's how the harmonic series works. If you add that G, it actually reinforces the sound of the C, even though initially that makes no sense to you. In other words, if I add a G, it'll make you hear the C better. Uh, and that's how, uh, uh, that's how the, the fractionals work. Now, if you go a little further down there to the next stop, you see a, a stop called Mixture, and then under pitch, you don't see a, a feet number. You see two Roman numerals. See where that is? Roman numeral 4 through Roman numeral 7. Those Roman numerals are the number of ranks that that mixture is. So you notice that in the next column, you see that the mixture on the grate has 322 pipes. Remember I said that each, uh, each manual has 58 notes. So you can immediately figure out that when you pull the mixture and you play one note you're actually playing a whole bunch of pipes at the same time. You're either playing four pipes, which is the four, five, six, that's what the dash means, or you're playing as many as seven, uh, seven notes at the same time. And what these notes are, are they're just a series of octaves and fifths that are really high. So let me play the mixture by itself. You can hear what it sounds like by itself. Here's middle C of the mixture. It's just a whole bunch of C's and G's that are way up high. So here, like for instance, you would never play a mixture by itself. Like here's a C major chord with the mixture, which sounds terrible, and you would never know what the uh, lowest note was. But if you pulled the mixture in the correct order, in other words, if you add it to the eight, four, and two, then it actually reinforces the, uh, the fundamental pitch um, by uh, playing all those higher C's and G's if that makes sense. So what I want to do now, let's see. Uh, I will give you, let me, uh, let me play you a couple examples here. We got about five minutes. I'll play you a couple, exam uh, a couple of short Bach examples where the pitch level makes it different. And I just want us to think through what difference does it make that these are eight fours or twos or whatever. First, I'll play a piece uh, a rare piece where Bach has actually specified what the registration should be. Normally, Bach doesn't give you any hints about how to register the piece. But here he says, 
in the hands, you should use an eight-foot principle, which is what I've been playing the whole time. And then in the feet, you should use an eight-foot trumpet. So let me just start the piece and show you what that sounds like. And then we'll talk about why the number is important. So you can hear, the, there's, uh, this is a canon. The tune is played by the, my pinky in the uh, right hand, and it's played by the pedal, which is an eight-foot stop. Now, listen to the difference if I add a 16-foot in the pedal and see if you can hear what the problem is. Okay, you can hear the difference, right? It's no longer just the eight-foot trumpet. It's added a bass quality to it. The only problem is the note that the pedal is playing in this piece is not the bass note in the harmony. And so if I register it too low, it sounds below what my hands are playing, and it ruins the voicing of the harmony. This is a slightly more advanced concept than uh, Organ 101, which I promised. But you, uh, to take my word for it, the, the point is... The canon is supposed to happen in the soprano and the tenor, but if I add a 16-foot in the pedal, it moves the canon to the bass, and it ruins the bass line, which is actually being played in my, by my left hand. Now I'll give another example where the a canon happens in the bass. So listen to this. Here's a, an Easter chorale. Let's see. Um... Okay, so here there's a canon between the right hand and the pedal, but here the bass line is actually the canon. So etc. There, my left hand is not playing the bass line, so I, I register it with that low, the low 16-foot sound in the pedal because that's the correct voicing. The point is, you can, you can manipulate the voicing of chords by either playing the right or the wrong registration. So, for instance, if I had registered the first piece not 8-foot, eight 8-foot, eight but if I had registered it, for instance, 8-foot and 2-feet in the pedal, then the pedal would actually be playing above the soprano line in my right hand. And so part of the trick of registration is knowing how all the voices are supposed to be in relationship to each other in terms of the pitch. Let's see if we have time for any uh, promised tests. Yeah, let's do the test and then let's break and then we'll uh, pick it up here next week. So I I I'll just uh, play two phrases uh, of a hymn that we sang this morning or will sing this morning. Um, and I'll play them with four different registrations, and I want you to think about uh, whether you can tell uh, what the registration is. Is it 8 and 4? Is it 8-4-2? Is it 8-4-2 mixture? Is it 16-8-4? In other words, think about how the pitch is in relationship to uh, what seems like concert pitch to you. So here, uh, here we go. Here's the first example. And here I am going to play with a 16-foot in the pedal because when we're uh, playing hymns, we always use a 16-foot in the pedal as the, uh, uh, the bass foundation. So here we go. Okay, that's example one, which was uh, eight, four, and two. Okay, you can hear that it had uh, a pretty high pitch along. For instance, this would just be eight foot. foot. But we did this. Okay, next example is this. Actually, let's do this.
that's everything, right? You can hear the 16-foot, the low pitch below, but you can also hear the mixture, the series of uh, uh, unisons and fifths on the top. And let's just do one more. Let's do this. And that's just eight and four. So you can hear all the differences in the things you heard were not caused by using different sounds like strings or trumpets or flutes or anything like that. They were only caused by using different pitch levels. In other words, how uh, was, it just, was it just unison voice? Was it unison plus an octave? Was it unison plus two octaves plus a series of fifths and unisons? You see what I mean? So there was no difference in the quality of the sound. It was just difference in the breadth, sort of the height of, uh, uh, the height of the sound and literally the height of the pipes. Next week, when we gather here, we will do a lot more playing because I will demo all the different sounds that the organ makes, all the different stop voices. Um, if, uh, the handout for next week is identical. So if you didn't write anything on yours, just leave it back on the stand on your way out. If you did write something on it, just bring it back next week because we're going to use the same thing. Um, oh, and one more thing. I, uh, we don't have time for it now, but next week when you're here early or whatever, these next two weeks especially, I will leave uh, all the lights on. So anybody is welcome to go back into the blower room, which is back here, and see sort of the guts of the instrument. You're also welcome to walk inside the organ, like the view that you see on image 10 on page 3. Uh, if you have me with you, anyone is welcome to go inside the organ, either there or up on the walkway. You need to be somewhat agile to do it. Um, but I'll have everything, uh, everything open and everything on. So please don't be shy about coming and peeking around, uh, either after the service today or next week. Okay? I know I've gone too long, and people need to sit in these seats. So thank you for your attention. I will see you uh, one week from today.